Let me pray and we'll think about this text. Lord God, uh, thank you for that you love us. Speak to us now. Give us a humility um, of intellect and a humility of will so that we can hear and learn and be changed by you. Amen. We are thinking today about what it means to be an empowered community. And I, uh, we're going to land on one of my favorite texts, which Keelan read out, which is profound and deep. But before we start that, I want to I point out to you a, a trap for young players when it comes to church and Christianity in our day and age. Okay, this is the trap. Have we got it on the screen here? Uh, this is the trap, right? We can think of the church here. This is the church, right? And uh, whatever the church means to you in your head. And, uh, and here is you and a bunch of other people. They're all just like you. And what we can think of is that there's, uh, you come to church and uh, you come to church and 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 you come to church. And we, we come to church. And when you come to church, you come and you, 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 you bring a bunch of stuff like yourself. Okay? And, and what you want is when you come is you want to come and you want to attend and you want to receive. So there's a... When church works well on this model, there's a mutual exchange. You bring your presence, you bring your money, you bring your voice, you bring a smile, you bring your attention, and, and you get some stuff in return. Maybe you get a bit of Jesus, maybe you get some jokes, maybe you get some good music, maybe you get some decent coffee, you get a sense of belonging, right? Maybe you get eternal life. Right? That's the, that's the model. Now... This is how we typically do life in our culture. You, instead of church, you could put their cafe, you could put their workplace, you could put their almost anything, which is that we have a, essentially, because this is how we've been hardwired to perceive the world, we essentially have a consumer contract relationship with the church. I come and give you stuff and you give me stuff and as long as that exchange uh, it works in my favor and isn't too onerous, I'll continue to participate, right? Um, and look, at one level that is totally fine. Like We all come to church because of what we can get in a variety of things. We come because we've got needs, we've got questions, we've got struggles, we've got all sorts of yearnings and longings. But this isn't actually a picture of the Christian community. This isn't actually church, is it? What is church looks a little more like? Church looks a little more like you know. Now these are because I, you know, these these are people, right? And and church is about a network where we work and empower each other and serve each other. And it's got kind of an open boundary so others can come in and you can come in as a consumer, for sure, we all do that. But once you're in, you know what? You love me and I love you and you love each other and, and it's not about service delivery from the platform that's going to change your life. You know what's going to change your life long term? It's God in us and with us and through us it's the accountability 
It's the honesty, it's the ministry and the love and the bonds of affection that connect us with each other. One way of putting it is to say we come to church because of what we can get. We stay in church because of what we can give. The other way is to think about it like this. You don't come to church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church. We are the church. There doesn't exist a Darling Street church outside of this web of relationships. And we have different roles to play. But the goal, if we're to flourish and if we're to be all that we want to be, we need each other to let the energy and the power of God flow through us into each other's lives to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. And that's a wonderful responsibility and a great privilege. Uh, now, hold that thought. What we need to make this work is uh, three things. We need a common vision. Like, what the heck are we doing? What are we, what are we, when we come and we're all buzzing around in this network of mutual empowerment, what are we empowering people to become? And we need to understand that there are no excuses. And we need a clear strategy. So let's think about these, and we get these three things from this little text in 2 Peter. There's a common, what's the common vision? Where are we heading towards? Well, look at this. Um, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us for his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Okay, so... What is, what is the, common, the common vision for your life and for my life, God says, is uh, participation in the divine nature? Another way of putting this, in the Orthodox churches, um, they talk about... Uh, Theosis, which is the Greek word behind this, which is actually to become God. Like, that's the radical, radical vision of 2 Peter, of Scripture, that says what God wants to do for you is to so work in your life and in my life and in our life that it can truly be said that we take our seat in the divine council with the status of Elohim. And those of you who are playing the game where you'd have a shot every time I mentioned Elohim, I'm thinking of you, Kimberly. Um, Penny told me you and she... Penny's just started that. Okay, anyway, that's fine. Here we go. As long as it's communion wine, you're fine. Um, we... We have this vision of actually becoming so full of God, so transformed by God, that we take up this role and this status and this place that we, we, we share in God. 
Now, one of the great problems in Protestantism, and where uh, that's our tribe, one of the great problems in our Protestant tradition is we've lost this vision of what, what God wants for us. So what we tend to think in Protestantism is, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm a worm, I've messed up, Jesus died for me, I ask him to forgive me, I get forgiven, and then I grimly hang on until the end in this miserable life, and then um, I get zapped up to heaven, and somehow then it's all okay. And I'm not really sure what happens in heaven, it's hanging out on clouds, uh, some sort of thing up there, but, but somehow I just... It's this grim, I'm a worm, God loves me, which is wonderful, but I just hang in there. And, and actually, you know what? There's, there's more to life than that. The vision you and I need to have for each other is this is, the, this is the unifying calling and vision for our lives. That if we aim for this, if we aim to become so uh, full of God, so grounded in God, so immersed in Him, that we, it can be said of you that you actually participate in the divine nature. The Catholic Church says it this way. One writer says, uh, this is life, to be a saint. Like, that's it. The calling is to say, we, we, we want to be that. Or C.S. Lewis put it this way, the goal of the church is to produce many Christs. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? So when, you, when we're here this morning or when we're hanging out in the grass and eating lovely souflaki lamb that Tom is cooking even as we speak, that you'll smell the cooking, what we're, what we're wanting to do is, is empower and encourage each other to say, don't settle for a vision of yourself that is anything less than becoming God. I mean, that's a little G God. Not big G God, of course. I'm not suggesting that you're going to become Yahweh and we all have to worship you. But I'm saying there's a vision for you. Don't settle. Don't think that your life is just, don't settle for just being a good husband or a good wife. I mean, that's a good, that's a great vision. But it's not enough. Don't settle for just being a good dad or a good mum. That's good, but it's not enough. Don't settle for being a good employee or a good business owner. That's good, but it's not enough. Don't settle for having a comfortable life and a fully funded superannuation and a harbour view. I mean, that's great, but it's not enough. Like, the, the, the vision that unites all our other visions and that makes sense of everything and puts everything else in perspective is this goal that, that I want to be a participant in the divine nature. I, I want to settle for nothing less than becoming a mini Christ. Being so connected with God that you shine the light of Jesus in the world and the Apostle Peter can say, you are a participant in the divine nature itself. Now, how does that happen? Uh, that, is, that is fascinating. How does this happen? Well, uh, well, the first thing to say is you might go, um, 
hang on, Mark. Whoa, 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 whoa. That all sounds great, but but I, I, I'm just struggling to uh, you know get here and put my clothes on, right? Like I'm struggling just to just to get through the day. And I go, you're right. And you, or you might say, Ah, oh, Mark, if you only knew the battles with mental illness that I struggle with. Or if you only knew the horrific abuse and trauma that I carry from my past. Or if you only knew how hard my workplace was. Or Mark, if you only knew how deeply disappointing church is and you are. <laughs> yeah, I know how disappointing I am. Our second point, though, is, um, is no excuses. And I, this is going to sound a little tough, and it's a little... You know, we're, we're a culture that loves, rightly so, to affirm people's brokenness, to stand with victims, to go, yeah, life is hard. And I get it. I totally get it. But, but there, in, this, in, this, in God's plan for your life, there can be no excuses for you to not participate in the divine nature. There, there are no excuse for you not to become more like Christ. None whatsoever. What do I mean by that? Well, I, and how can I say that without being a crushing legalistic burden on you? Well, this is, I can say it because of this. Our transformation to become like Jesus, our participation in the divine nature, is not, does not rest on anything first and foremost in us. It rests on what God has given us. So look at this. His divine power has given us most things we need. Verse 3. And we have to add the rest in. And if you're really broken and struggling, you're not going to be out of the rest in, so you've got a way out. You've got an excuse. If only there was better music in church. If only the preacher was better. If only your mum had loved you more. If only your workplace was easier. If only you didn't struggle continually with anxiety and depression. Then you could be transformed. You go, no, 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 no. Listen. Those things throw us back on ourselves. And what God wants to do is say, no, I have given you everything. I have given you everything we need for a godly life. Everything. Now, that's not everything you need to have a financially successful life. It's not everything you need to have an easy life. It's not everything you need to have a well-adjusted life. It's not everything you need to have an undistracted life. Um, and, and I say that... I say that because I made this point a few weeks ago. It really is about reframing all of our life, Right? So as we go through great suffering, you go, this suffering is not, does not give us moral license to give up on God. The suffering rather can be seen as the crucible within which God is forming our character be, to be like that of Jesus. That's what it's like, right? And that's, that's not an, I'm not saying that in a tried, easy way. I mean, I, under, I understand how extraordinarily hard life can be in all sorts of ways. But I also know that God has given me everything I need if I'm going to avail myself of it. And, and a lot of what, he, what I need comes from Him, but it also comes from Him through each other. 
through these he's given us his great and very precious and precious promises so that's the that no excuses now I, I don't know i mean you know the the moral license excuse is is true right like i'm doing well here this is this is the concept of moral license is this right i've gone i've done okay in this area of life so i give myself permission to do badly or slack off in this area so um i've why do many gyms, and particularly in North America, not quite so much here, but in North America we discovered lots of gyms have juice bars at the, at the entrance to the gym, right? And so you go, here's how it works. I go to the gym, I work out, and then I go, oh, I've done so well, I'll reward myself with a milkshake, a sugary juice, some junk food. That's how it works. You go, okay, it's been hard here, I've put it in, I'm, yeah! Ah. I think that's, that's often how we do life. Yeah, I've, I've really battled here, Lord. It's been hard, so ah. Oh. And God says, no, no, no excuses, buddy. No excuses. I died for you. I love you. There is an infinite well of love and grace and mercy available to us if we will just avail ourselves of it. It's not to say it's going to be easy, but it's to say it's going to be good. So no excuses. And then uh, what we need is a clear strategy, right? Okay, so how does this work? How does this process work? Well, here's what you need to do. Um, you you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of building blocks to faith, right? And what do you do? Well, you start with faith. For this reason, that is the reason of becoming a participant in the divine nature. If you want to become a participant in the divine nature, what you've got to do is you've got to start with faith. Okay, you've got, you got to believe. You've got to actually believe that there's a God. You've got to believe this stuff's true. And, and faith has to lead to action. Otherwise, it's not faith. It's just, oh, I believe. And it's, it's the old example, right? Like... Um, Here's a chair. Very important. Here's a chair. Now, I believe, I have faith that this chair will support my weight. And, uh, and I can look at this chair and I can go, it's a great chair, fantastic chair, and it'll support my weight and I can circle around it and I can talk to you about the benefits of this. I can tell you that I love this chair. I've got a chair like this at home. It's an important chair. I can come very close and I can, ah, uh, but I don't know about that. I feel ambivalent. I'm a little scared about this chair supporting my weight. I'm not sure. So I, I kind of, you know, maybe I, maybe I come down a little bit and I just put, you know, I rest one ischial tuberosity, also known as a butt cheek, on the chair. But I'm still mostly carrying my own weight. Oh, there we go. It's, well, you know, that's a, do I really have faith in the chair? I mean, this is an exhausting way to live. I'm here in church, and I'm sitting on the chair, but I, I'm not going to let it take my whole weight because I've got to make sure it works for me. I'm, I, can't, I can't really trust it because at any moment, so it might be yanked away from me. And God says, you've got to have faith. You've got to rest in his promises. You've actually got to allow God to carry your weight. You say, how does that happen? Well... Um, give some money away. 
trust God to carry the weight of providing for you financially. Oh! Like, I don't know. I just see a lot of us, ah, trust you, God, but just not for this. Try forgiving someone and not holding on to bitterness and plotting revenge. It's hard. Trust that God will provide justice in the end. There's all sorts of things. Uh, maybe faith is, is like literally taking Jesus at his word and basing your day-to-day -day decisions on what Jesus says about the nature of reality. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will fall into place, Jesus says. So do you actually live like that? I think most of us are really exhausted and stuck spiritually because we're hovering with one butt cheek on the kingdom of God. <laughs> and that's exhausting. You're miserable. You're not standing and you're not sitting. You're just kind of one foot in, one foot out, hovering, and God says, just trust. And then what you've got to do is once you've established that, and that's hard, right? I'm not saying, I don't, I'm not saying faith is easy. Uh, boy, I'm a hoverer. I'm a world-class hoverer. <laughs> <laughs> but I know when I actually trust God, I go, that it works. Like, you know, actually, God's way works. But then what I've got to do is I can't just trust faith. I have to add to that goodness. Um, which is another way of saying, in this community, we need to have a moral vision of our lives. Like, this is, and now if you went around today in our culture, you said, what's a good person? What does goodness look like? And is that, is that something that you wake up in the morning and you go, today is a challenge. I'm trusting Jesus, but today I want to be good. What does that look like? Uh, many years ago when I came, uh, when I was at university in Cape Town, I studied philosophy with a fellow called Augustine Shute. He had a very big impact on me, did Augustine. He'd been a Catholic priest and then he'd been doing a PhD uh, at Cambridge, and he'd found um, a cause to rethink the church's teaching on celibacy uh, in the priesthood in the form of a, a very gorgeous uh, woman. So he, he rethought that, and he became an Anglican, because <laughs> we are Catholic light. Um, and, uh, and he became an Anglican, and, and brilliant philosophy, and he returned to Cape Town to teach philosophy at the university. And he taught me philosophy for a couple of years and um, had a huge impact on how I think about life. And when I made the decision to leave medicine and come to Australia to go to seminary, go to Bible college, um, he'd, he'd just published a book. And long story, my mum went, and he was doing these evening lectures, and mum went and did some philosophy with him. And uh, she got all excited, and she said, oh, do you remember my son Mark? And he did, because we, you know, there weren't many people taking philosophy seriously in Cape Town, and so we'd, we'd had a good relationship. So he remembered me, and Mum went and got him to sign the book, and he wrote this inscription in the front of the book, and I've still got it, both the book and the inscription. Um, and he had a little line in there. He said, Mark, it is a wonderful privilege to go and live amongst a community of people who truly want to be good. I mean, he obviously was optimistic about the nature of Bible college, 
But it's true. That struck me. I thought the, the power and privilege of living amongst a group of people who have a common moral vision of goodness. Like that's powerful, right? Our culture, that does not exist outside communities of faith. So we need to hold before each other a vision of goodness. And then we need to add to this knowledge because it's hard to know how to be good, isn't it? You've actually got to think. You've got to learn. You've got to study. You've got to figure this stuff out. And then what you've got to do is you've got to add to this self-control because you know what? Um, <clears throat> there are enormous pressures and forces at work from outside of us and from within us that will work against you and I um, knowing the good and doing the good. Um, like we have an extraordinary ability to self-sabotage. We have an extraordinary ability to blame everybody else for what's gone wrong in the world. We have an extraordinary ability to, um, to actually see Christianity as a shortcut to something, peace, and it's not. It's an invitation to a path of suffering that leads to goodness, that leads to glory. And that leads us to the second point, that as I learn to control myself, oh, by the way, wouldn't you, anyway, this is a moral vision for our culture, right? Like, wouldn't you want to just stand up and say, hey, the way men and women are struggling to relate and all the problems in Parliament House and all the angst in our businesses, if we just, if we just lived out to Peter, wouldn't it be great? Like self-control, people. It's not that hard. Well, only it seems to be. Only it's not that hard because there's no excuses because God's given us everything we need to be self-controlled because we know what the good is. We have a vision for the good. We're in a community of good and we base all of this on a deep trust that there is a God who will sort everything out in the end and then what we've got to do is we've got to add perseverance to that because this is just hard. Like there is, there is a lot that's going to come and knock you off your bicycle. Lots of setbacks and you're going to find the setbacks in yourself. So what do you do? Well, you, you just get up and keep going. Like you just get up and keep going. What, what else are you going to do? Um, Christianity has been described as a long obedience in the same direction. I love that. It's just a long obedience in the same direction. You just keep following. Just persevere. I, I would guess the first 80 or 90 years are the hardest. And then what happens is, is, you know what, we become more godly. And out of all of this, out of this process of moral transformation, we experience mutual affection. That is the kind of brotherly, family affection of people you know. And what that ends up in is love, which is godly love, participation in the divine nature, which is love of enemy, love of other, love of the least, the last, and the lost, love of those who would hurt you and persecute you. That's the moral vision of our lives that we become those people. One of the tragedies of the Protestant church, actually, and of our contemporary church, is um, we settle for too little. I reckon most of us are happy if we, just, if, we can just get, if we can get a bunch of people to say they believe, we're happy. We're like, yes! <laughs> well, actually, they've got to believe and kind of hang out together. And we go, yes, that's it. And I go, no, that is not enough. That is step one. 
We need a vision of participating in the divine nature as we work together, as we grow together, as we empower each other, as God works in us. And when we do that, we change the world. Anyway, there we go. I'm going to stop. Uh, the kids are doing wonderfully well. Uh, I'm the furthest away from them. Those of you in the back few rows, I want to applaud your capacity to tune out children and at least pretend to listen to me. Um, it's a wonderful exercise in perseverance. Let me pray, Lord God. Uh, thank you that you have a plan for our lives to, to help us participate in your very nature to be so changed that we can take our place with you in the divine council and rule all of reality. So work in us as a community that we might build this kind of networked mutual empowerment for our good and the blessing of this city in which we live. Amen.